You're listening to the Jay's Journal Podcast, Roundtable Edition, for Sunday, June the 25th. I'll be joined in a few moments by Craig Borden, Nick Raponi, and Chris Henderson, all of jaysjournal.com, to talk about the Blue Jays, who just salvaged the last game of their three-game set with the Kansas City Royals, before heading back home, having a break tomorrow, and embarking on what will be arguably the most important homestand to date. So now I want to introduce the Jay's Journal podcast roundtable for this afternoon. I'm joined by three brilliant, brilliant baseball minds. Let's start with the first one. He's the site expert. Chris Henderson is with us. Chris, how are you? Um, as I always say, Ari, I'm doing well when I'm chatting with you. Yeah, and, and you always sound incredibly sedated and relaxed. Is that just something that's the result of talking about baseball, or is that your normal disposition? Well, it helps when the boys win, you know. <laughs> Look at that. Exactly. It's like a man who just, just listened to an 8-2 to two win over the Royals. Um, also with us today is a gentleman who is one of our most prodigious and busy writers and always talking about something exciting related to the team as well as the minor leagues. As a true expert, I'm talking about Nick Raponi. Nick, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Ari? I am great. Thank you for uh, for joining us, and um, I'm sure you're going to have a lot to say about this victory today. We all will. But rounding up this round, this this format that we have, this round table is, of course, our site specialist on the minor leagues, and someone who knows more about baseball than I think all of us put together. I'm talking about Craig Borden. Craig, how are you? Well, thanks. I'm doing good, Gary. Thanks for the compliment. I appreciate it. I'm 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 pumping the tires already on your ego. That's going to be the recurring theme for this round table, <laughs> guys. Ego is currently building. Oh boy, <laughs> you don't have to convince us. We know that. Believe me. Um, so let's talk, about, let's talk about where we're at right now, guys. I, I gathered you here because I thought it'd be a good idea to talk about what really was a profoundly disappointing road trip. They finished three and four against two teams that. Quite frankly, when we see some of these later AL East teams, will seem like a walk in the park. And they did it in a way where most of the games were either close games or completely lopsided. Huge inconsistency. 36 and 39, three games under 500. I want to start with you, Chris. How do you feel about where we are heading into a break before a devastatingly difficult homestand? Well, I think, as we talked about a few days ago, I think this is really a crucial point, especially with these ALE opponents coming up. It it really would have been great if we could have been at least a game under 500 or a game over 500 going into this next stretch of games. But um, I think with all that's happened in the last few days, and especially ending this last series over the win, I'm hopeful that uh, with Osuna returning to the mound, that uh, there's going to be just uh, some positive momentum that builds into this into this next section of games, and and uh, these are the crucial ones. These really, really are the most important. And as much as you should be beating up on the Rangers, and or not us should be beating up, but taking the majority of the wins against the Rangers and the Royals, um, the, this is where you make up the serious ground in the AL East, and uh, it's kind of an early do or die point for the guys. Early do or die. What do you guys think? Is this really it? I mean. 87, 88 games left. Let's say they struggle on this homestand. Is that it for the season, or do we have a recurringly Groundhog Day, Bill Murray-like conversation about this in about three weeks? If you want me to be completely honest, I actually oh, oh, think... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I actually think this uh, stretch here where we got Baltimore and uh, Boston at home, and then we go play New York, I think if we don't come out over 500 in these games, it's not looking good, because then we got 
Houston going to the All-Star game. And I think at the All-Star game is where you really, really have to address yeah. the team. Because if you don't think you are truly, truly in it, it might be wise to move some contracts. Because you have some players, like I'm not saying you have to trade Donaldson. You do not have to trade Donaldson by any means. But if you're going to be at a point where you don't think you're going to make the playoffs and there's a bunch of teams in roughly the same situation as you, the teams that are going to be – half those teams are going to be trying to go for it and half those teams are going to try and sell. So I figure that if the teams that are trying to go for it, you can basically deplete their farm system if, by giving a guy like Josh Donaldson. Maybe Jose Bautista you're not going to get quite as much for, but let's say we give a guy like Josh Donaldson. Donaldson could have – after obviously guys like Trout, Kershaw, they have more value. But Donaldson for a third baseman who plays good defense as well, and he's got that bat. Donaldson, you can you can deplete pretty well any other any minor league system if you trade him. So I think you really got to address it. If you do not do well in these next two two and a half weeks, I think it might be time to maybe make some trades. What do you guys think? Josh Donaldson would be the best on the team, but as far as things go, if you're gonna build a franchise going forward is that somebody you really want to get rid of yes i know we can get turn around and get a ton of prospects for josh donaldson but they could be still prospects in two years from now you never know you know you, you have a team that is still close to winning regardless of the current factor that you know we're dancing around the 500 line you trade all those guys to turn around and be awful next year just to string it along i think you got enough talent in the minor league system that if you get a Maybe trade a Marco Estrada if he's starting to turn the ship around. You know, trade those one-year guys, get a few pieces rather than trading the big splash where you might be able to keep Donaldson. And I totally agree with you, Craig. And that's what I kind of mean by the early do and die point is that not that they can't necessarily turn things around with this many games remaining, but I think that if they, you know, like let's say they they uh, end up a couple games under 500 on this road trip, well then now they're five games under 500 going into that Houston series. And they're, you know, now you're at a point where you have to seriously consider trading those one-year deals. Maybe Donaldson, that's a totally a team philosophy future, how they view the long term. And whether or not they believe they can resign him, too, I think is a massive factor when it comes to Donaldson. But, um, you know, the one-year guys, the Estradas and the Lirianos and the Batistas, um, those are the ones that um, will, should be on the block if the guys aren't going to be in contention. Well, you know, respectfully, I don't like lose, the idea of losing these guys, but... Um, you know, it's better to get an asset if you're going to have somebody that's going to lead the end of the season. What uh, Strada can get us right now with his performance, I'm not sure. He'd have to have a few uh, really good starts, um, you know, before that time to maybe remind people of how valuable he can be. But uh, but, but uh, I think that's why it's an early do and die. But. My, my question is this. Toronto is no stranger as a city to trading players of a Josh Donaldson caliber player. But I mean, you, all you have to do is look at Vince Carter. All you have to do is look at, um, let's say, on, on the hockey side, uh, players that have come and gone through the Maple Leafs turnstile. It, it's, it, Doug Gilmore, even when he was traded, was a horrible, horrible decision in the eyes of many fans because he was a fan favorite. But Josh Donaldson, wouldn't the message be that we're pretty much giving up? By giving up on this season, we're willing to accept the fact that now there'll be 15,000 people showing up on a Thursday night or a Monday Monday night in, in the Rogers Center, isn't that, isn't that the worst message you can send to your fan base when you trade the one player that maybe many of them are coming to see? Well, I can see how you could say that, but I think if they're out of it, we've seen in the past, we've had stars like Halliday, we've had stars like Wells come around, know that Wells is a Josh Donaldson, and they still sell 15,000 seats come on a Thursday night. You know what I mean? If the team's out of it, I don't think a star is going to bring too many player, people to the diamonds. It's just in the past we've seen 
ticket sales struggle, even with the stars on the team. Just if the team's not doing well, then I don't think the fans are going to come to the park. It's unfortunate that some Blue Jay fans like that, not all Blue Jay fans, the true Blue Jay fans obviously are diehard, but I just don't think keeping a guy like Donaldson is going to necessarily sell tickets. I really don't. It's the only thing that's going to – but at the same time, the more games you lose, I understand, the further you fall, the less tickets you'll sell. So I do understand both sides, but I just really think – I look at – we already have Tulo locked up. We have Big Con – not that anybody, nobody's going to take Tulo's contract at like within the next three years, I would say. You have Russell Martin locked up pretty long term. Can we, We're going to have to pay Sanchez – can we even afford to pay Donaldson? That's the question I look at. I don't know if Shapiro and co would pay him anyway. It's granted. I am not in the organization. I don't know how way they think, but I don't know. Like I just, I really, part of me thinks that they might not see it like Donaldson will sign long-term. So that's why I think it wouldn't be a bad idea to field offers, at least field offers if they don't do well in these next uh, six to nine games. Yeah. Well, I think you guys hit the nail on the head earlier on. I think, uh, you know, if you're talking about trading somebody like Donaldson, I think, you know, if we're out of it, then I think you do look at the one-year guys. But trading Donaldson sends the message that they don't think they can compete next year either. And, um, you know, and and maybe that's something that they, they feel if, they, if they're out of it this early. I don't think that the roster is um, in a position where they can't compete next year, even if they do lose the Batistas or, you know, that opens up some other free agency money coming into this next off season. And I think next year they can be competitive again. There's just been, obviously, as we know, there's been a lot of variables that have worked against them this season with health and, and uh, inconsistent performance, but there is a, still a lot of talent on this roster. And I think it'd be, if they do believe they can compete next year, I think it'd be, I don't like the idea of trading Donaldson, but I think you make a valid point that, uh, I mean, I think you make a valid point that he's going to be difficult to re-sign because he's going to be very expensive and we have a lot of money on the books. I, th- I think all four of us agree that, that we want him to stay. I think we're, we're yeah. all realistic to know that a 33, 34-year-old regress, you know, athlete who will regress and want 25 to $28 million is just not something this regime would ever entertain. Maybe in a world where, where Beeston is still president and Anthopoulos has his blank check, but I think it goes to Chris's point that that gap, that one to two year gap that this team needed to continue being competitive is missing because of what was done to become competitive after 23 years of losing baseball for all intents and purposes. And I think that's the real challenge. How will this, it's such an interesting thing to witness because we all understand, we all understand the limitations of this team. When do we declare them a seller or a buyer? Like at what point this year? Because we will have to draw the line, and I'm wondering what you three feel about that. Where, when will you draw that line to finally say this team is now going to need about two years of hibernation before the Vladi Guerrero Juniors and Bichettes and Rowdy Telezes? How do we do that without you know the attendance sinking back down to about a million and a half a year? I just think um, you got a lot more talent that probably will come up quicker than that. Yeah, it's not going to be your superstar player, but think you're going to be putting a 500 level team around the ballpark. Uh, I don't see it having such a gigantic regress to the point that we're going to be, you know, dancing on the line of only having like 30, 40 wins like the Houston Astros did for such a long time. We're not going to be burying a team to get a first round draft pick. See, Craig, that that's positive. Like the listener will hear that and say, you're making me feel better because I think that, I don't know about you, uh, all, but I, I seem to hear nothing but a great deal of cynicism around the quality and caliber of talent. And I think that's why it's great that I have that, that we have this kind of round table environment to be able to talk about some of that talent. I want to get into that a little bit later. Um, 
what I want to ask you all right now is something that was in the news over the last 24 hours. As you know, uh, on the last episode of the Jay's Journal podcast, I invited a sports psychologist to talk to our followers and listeners about Roberto Asuna. And I looked something up today and did some research into his start as a closer, and it's nothing short of beyond impressive. I mean, it's just, he for what he's done in a very short time as a young man, to be an elite closer, to be the fastest, I think, in Major League history to get to 75 saves. My question is, is to you is, is he overworked? It, could this just be the result of too soon, too fast, and maybe now he's starting to feel the heat of the sun? He is Let me do one of the most off. mature players I've ever seen at somebody his age, period. And I was one of the very few people that thought he could have jumped in right when uh, the 2015 season started. He was dancing on that line even after a bad Arizona Fall League that I was like, There's just, this guy's got too much talent to be able to fail as far as things go. But as far as, it, maybe it is just a little, you know, catching up in the personal life. You know, you got a guy that was hanging out in the minor leagues and then all of a sudden in the majors, you know, and he's one of the best guys in baseball in three years. It's maybe just to the point where it's one of those things. It's just getting settled outside. You know, being at the ballpark is his comfort zone, clearly, when he comes in and did great today. But uh, he looked like he didn't have anything going on as far as things go. He looked at business as usual with Roberto Osuna on the mountain today. Yeah, I, 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 happen to, I do agree. It seems like he is at his most comfortable when he's on the ball field. No doubt about it. But like you said, he went straight from a young kid in the minor. Sure, he played professionally in Mexico when he was 16. So he has professional baseball experience. He's been a pro, use that term lightly, I don't know, but a pro in that, like, I guess he was a pro in the Mexican league. But now he's pro at the major league level. And it's a big jump going from playing in the minor leagues to the major leagues. And you're in the ninth inning. You have potentially, you're closing out ball games. You have some of the most pressure possible on you. And everyone is different. Like, every single, well, I, to me, everyone is different. So I feel the way he thinks outside of the game, we have no idea. We don't know what's going on in his personal life. He could just, there could be something going on within the family, within his friends. He, we, we really don't know. And, obvious, and I think the, actually the one thing the media has done a great job of, nobody's really jumped to any conclusions, which really is good because there's nothing worse than with mental illness, someone jumping to a conclusion. So I think they did a really, they've done a pretty good job of that. And I think with Osuna, well, they got to keep their eye on him in terms of when he's comfortable to come and pitch, like he pitched today, you pitch. But if he needs those days off, sure, wins. You, you want to want to bring him into the ninth inning, but his mental health is much more important than a win. So Eric, I think the way – A player that's going to be here for years to come, having somebody mentally healthy and stable is obviously the, the goal. And he's a human exactly. being. Let him be – let him do what he yeah. needs to do. Exactly. Well, and to add to this point, too, guys, I mean, you'll appreciate this, Ari. I was driving, uh, making a trip earlier on today and uh, had played the podcast that we were, um, was, was the um, sports psychologist. And I had a friend who's not even a baseball fan at all. And I just asked him if he wouldn't mind listening to it. And he said, yeah, go ahead. So then I, after we listened to her speak, um, I explained the whole situation. And he just looks at me and he goes, well, come on, man. Like, remember when you were 22? Like, how messed up in the head were you when you were 22 years old? <laughs> and that's not to suggest that Osuna's messed up in the head. But, I mean, let's realistically, any of us that are older than that, reflect back on your life and think about some of the things you were going through at that age. He's taking on more than I deal with now. Being and I'm you know I'm 33 I'm 11 years a senior and I couldn't I'm not sure I can handle the uh, the amount of pressure that he gets on a, on a daily basis I get to a few people you know, calling me an idiot on one of my articles and I'm questioning my writing ability he is he blows a save he's got thousands of people that are calling him out and he's 22 years old and he's been doing it since he's 20 so I think that's something that we just have to remember is that 
you know, it's maybe, and you have to admire his bravery too, for the fact that he was willing to speak about it. And I'm sure that he's not the first person to have gone through this at all. Uh, well, I know he hasn't, he's not. So to um, the fact that he's willing to speak out, I think is a tremendous asset for the organization. And, uh, you know, I, I'm very, very I'm optimistic that he's going to be able to perform. Uh, but if he needs some time off, I think that's extremely important. Well, and and that's important because, as as Dr. Real, who who was so gracious to join the show yesterday, pointed out that uh, anxiety, depression, um, all the various facets of of the mental health challenges that the modern day professional athlete has to deal with is is literally identical to all of us do. And I think because we tend to look at him as being this uh, this athlete put in the in the spotlight and all the pressure put on him, we take for granted that he'll always be at 100% mentally and psychologically prepared. And and she pointed that out. And I, I find it interesting though that we're talking about this and 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 referring to his courage. And and there's definitely it takes courage to be able to acknowledge something like that. But I'm wondering how you three as journalists feel in the way that the story was broken because Arden's Welling who is employed by Roger Sportsnet, was the one who brought it into the light of Twitter. And that's when it kind of exploded like wildfire. And you suddenly, any baseball fan and Blue Jays fan could go on Twitter and find out that Roberto had made these comments. But the night before, John Gibbons downplayed them. My question is, what happened there? What's your interpretation of why John Gibbons felt he needed to be so coy? Uh, and, and ultimately how the news filtered out the way it did. It's not something I don't think Rogers is too thrilled about. I'd love to jump on this one because I wrote an article before the information broke that um, the reason for why Osuna was, and it was titled, and I may get this wrong, but it was like, come on, Gibby, you're making this difficult, I think is what yeah. I called it. And uh, I felt, you know, I admire, I admire Gibbons for, for sticking up for his player and not, uh, you know, not divulging information that we don't have any business knowing unless he chooses to share with us. But uh, at the time, I just felt that Gibbons, I've been roasted on Twitter and, on, and several times for this opinion, but I'll say it again anyway. And maybe, maybe if I'm speaking it, then people would understand what I mean. But I felt like he could have just handled it with a little less like contempt. If the, uh, you know, instead of saying, you know, you don't need to know, he could have just said, you know what, he wasn't feeling well and we didn't, uh, you know, we can't be throwing him in there if he's not 100%. Or maybe he, you know, he's, he slept kind of funny in his arms a little stiff today. Just make, you don't need, some people kept saying, well, don't lie about it. And, but uh, you could have just kind of made an excuse, or a better excuse, um, just to, to kind of maybe drop the topic a little bit, um, or at least to, to take attention away from it. You know, fortunately, Osuna chose to share what he did uh, the next day, and I think that's great for baseball and for mental health everywhere. But um, yeah, I, th- I felt like Gibbons could have taken some attention away from the issue by being less contemptuous of his response. Tact is not strong was necessary. Tact is not Gibby's strong suit, sadly. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I personally think I compl- when I read that article, Chris, I I completely agreed. I, I thought that I mean, I read it before we knew about what was wrong right. with Roberto Osuna, but um, I completely agree. He kind of brushed it off like it was like it was nothing. Like he's like, ah, I just wasn't feeling good. You don't need to know anything else. And sure, that's one way of handling it. But like you said, he could have easily just said like something along the lines of. You know, he wasn't at his best today. wasn't uh, wasn't he's not, He doesn't even have to lie about it. Just he wasn't at his best today. He approached us, told us that it wasn't good for him to come in today, so we didn't bring him in. It's as simple as that. You know what I mean? He could have gone to a little more detail, and there would have been no questions. Right. But I do think our dean's welling, and he did apologize on Twitter. He publicly apologized because he said he's dealing with a mental illness, 
And those words never came out of Roberto Osuna's mouth. So I think that's where he, and he apologized for that. He backtracked, said, I'm sorry, even though anxiety and feeling lost is, I guess he said anxious and lost. Is that the quote Osuna said? Mm-hmm. Anxious. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think he could have quoted him as anxious and lost, but in saying by, by saying he had a mental illness, I think that was a little bit poor in taste, but at the same time, anxiety and feeling lost is attributed to mental illness. So I see people were upset about that. So I see how, like when I just said in previously that the uh, media handled it well, I thought they handled it pretty well in terms of once it came out, once Roberto came out and said what his, what said what, how he felt, I think they handled it well after that. But the whole Arguin's Welling thing of him saying uh, it was a mental illness, I don't think that was the best. But I think it goes back to what you said, Chris, with Gibby. If Gibby would have handled this a little better, who knows the, how it would have unfolded. It may have unfolded a lot differently. Well, and today was key, I think, getting him out there in the ninth. I think that uh, some some people watching today, some fans would argue that, that that doesn't really make sense considering he's, quote, scuffling or grappling with his uh, – with his anxiety or his mental mental state of mind, but seeing him out there was something that I think every Blue Jays fan can agree was positive. What I also noticed something else that was positive. I, I noticed that Jose Bautista is now ranked fourth all time in career RBIs with this franchise. Is anyone really surprised? And and how do you feel about him? If maybe something changed, knowing this, probably not. What are you guys thinking about Jose? Maybe start with Craig. Yeah, as far as it goes, it doesn't surprise me at all. Like you gotta think that when he came over from the Pirates, he was one of the best players. All of a sudden, everybody forgets that that 54 uh, home run season was actually kind of hinted at a little bit right when he came over that August. So he got with Cito and started adding in the, the leg kick into his uh, repertoire and everything. He started just crushing the ball. Period. Obviously, playing in the AL East and all the smaller ballparks might have helped accentuate those numbers off the bat, but. He's always had one of the better bat speeds for anybody as far as things go, and that just finally got him on pace to do everything. And then he's been doing nothing but truckle on at 100 RBIs since, so plenty of years of production right there. But is it safe to say this is the last one? You, you can't see him coming back next year, do you? If I do, um, I would love to see him come back, honestly. I'm one of, but I just can't see paying him the money I would think he would want mm-hmm. probably to come back for another season. He already feels like in his heart he's probably already taken a pay cut this year. What is he really going to think next year going into the off season again? Fair, so. well, and I, agree with you. I agree with you there, Craig, too. But I think uh, I, don't, I agree that uh, I don't think the option gets exercised by the club at all. Um, but uh, if, if whether or not he comes back is going to be a – uh, it's going to depend on a how the team views their um, their opportunity to be competitive next year, and also the market. Because uh, as we saw this past off season, it wasn't anything like he thought it was going to be. And we, you know, we learned there was a couple teams that were in late, uh, Cleveland and and uh, Tampa Bay, if I'm not mistaken, were kind of in late on it. But uh, nobody, you know, there's nobody lining up to sign him. And, uh, and as far as that goes, it's only going to get more difficult this season too. As far as right. the competition, like you were saying, you got everybody coming off the lineup well, it seems like this year I think we can yeah. all agree that he's doing his typical Jose Bautista inconsistent one great month one sour month he's going to finish this season doing exactly more or less what he did last year and I think that'll create the ultimate dilemma of not getting enough interest from other teams or having the Blue Jays decide that maybe they need to park company because it's time to give young kids a look speaking of young kids Nick I want to ask you and then the other guys can chime in Dwight Smith Jr. Now hitting 370, yep. off to a good start. Is he a fly-by-night project, or do you think he'll find a way to finally hold on with this team? 
Oh, yeah, I think uh, going forward from here on out, he's the everyday left fielder, and I think he will be next year, too. I think uh, they have something in Dwight Smith Jr., and they have a very slow team. That's one thing about the Jays. Their team has very little speed, and I think he adds that element of speed, which is important to me. You don't need nine guys who can run, but you do need a couple guys to run for a few reasons. A, defensively in the outfield, tracking down balls. B, on the base pass, gives that threat of getting a guy into runner in scoring position after a single. And C, even bunting, like the threat of a bunt. You bring the corners in, it opens up a little bit more of the infield. I think Dwight Smith Jr. adds a lot to this team, and I do think he's for real. I think he stays on balls pretty well. Sure, he's young. There's always going to be holes, but I think he has the potential to really improve upon those holes. What do you guys think? You know what? I, I do agree that he's got a lot of talent and upside, and I think he's, he brings some great stuff to the fold, but uh, I don't think he's going to be – uh, you know, he may get a chance to play for a while here. He's, he's hitting well, but I don't think I don't think he's going to be, have a chance to be a starter next year. Only because I think Alfred is a is a more ready and a much higher ceiling prospect. Maybe he's not more ready, but I just think Alfred, when he's healthy, will overtake him very quickly. And so, unless they're planning on flanking Pilar with uh, two youngsters in the outfield next year, which maybe they might, depending on how the rest of the season goes, I don't uh, I don't know. I think Dwight Smith could end up being the type of player that could be a tradable asset if uh, if we're in contention this year or down the road. But uh, I could be wrong. I've been wrong a million times before. No, for sure. Yeah, Dwight Smith, he is definitely a guy I can see as a tradable asset. But the one thing about Alfred, I like Alfred. Alfred, obviously, way more potential, way more upside. I do think Alfred needs another year. Not a full year in the minors, but I would rather start next season with Dwight Smith Jr. and left than Alfred. I think Alfred needs a little more time, especially versus right-handers. Versus left-handers, the guy just absolutely rakes. But I think versus righties, even just watching him at the plate, I think there's still a little bit of a hole. I think he needs to work on that plate coverage a little bit more. Granted, he could work on it the rest of the season if he comes back from the injury, So I think, or when he comes back from the injury. So I think, I, I, I really do think Alfred has the higher upside, but I think Dwight Smith Jr. is more... MLB ready, if that makes sense, but the potential is obviously the ceiling's much higher with Alfred. Yeah, and I wouldn't disagree. Just, with that yeah, just to dive in as far as things go, I uh, I agree with you guys on all points there. But just think about this one: you could have these four outfielders in your outfield next year. Worst case scenario, Kevin Pillar obviously is not going anywhere. Dwight Smith Jr. and then you would have somebody like Anthony Alfred also in the mix. And who was the fourth person I was thinking of? Well, oh, Dalton Pompey. Probably. Everybody's forgotten about him. Yeah. <laughs> He's been hurt all year. Yeah. You've got those four guys that you can have coming out to the ballpark every day that you have a completely different dynamic in your outfield that we haven't seen in Blue Jays history, in my opinion. There hasn't been that amount of speed in the outfield, period, as far as I can remember. And I think Dwight Smith Jr. is one of those guys that can figure everything out at the ma- major league level. The guy has done nothing but struggle to get to the, where he's at right now, and he's overcome every obstacle that he's gotten to. He's got it was a first round draft pick. People forget that. Yeah, he fell off the radar as far as the top thirty prospects go, but that's all a lot of it. So due to the credit to the drafting and how much talent we've been raking into the system, period. That might not be necessarily Dwight Smith's fault for falling off that list. That's true. That's true. I want to talk about that. That's a great segue. Although I do find it decidedly ironic that for a franchise that once used to brag that it had the best outfield in baseball, it seems like we've last, I don't know, 10, 15 years treating the outfield like a shuffling deck of cards. You know, it seems like yeah. every year we know maybe yeah. one or two 
two thirds of the of the uh, outfield will be set, and then there'll be a player, you know, sharing it with three or four p- prospects. Uh, anyways, we'll, we'll, hopefully that will stabilize. But but from a talent perspective of what came, what has what what has gone, um, obviously all three of you remember September of 2015, and and what a significant time it was for the fate of this franchise. And of course, looking back at a lot of the talent, like when I see commercials for that movie, The Purge, I always think of the Blue Jays around that time and the amount of pitching talent that was sent away. You know, names like Norris and Hoffman and Syndergaard and and uh, and and then other... That other, boys, you know, all those. Stars. Yeah, exactly. Barreto. You know, Barreto, I have to tell you, watching him hit a home run in his Major League debut, I recalled a friend of mine telling me how we will, we being the Blue Jays, would regret trading him once Josh Donaldson had finished his three to five years and moved on. And that's why I found it really ironic seeing that kind of talent, remembering that once upon a time, what was the, uh, maybe you can start Nick by giving us your opinion. What was the highest this minor league system was ranked at one point collectively in baseball? And how does that compare to where we're at now? Uh, I be- I'm not a hundred percent sure on this, but I believe before Anthopolis really blew it up to make that run, I believe we we're third. If I'm not mistaken, wow. we're the third highest. I think you're 100 percent right with that one, Nick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. We were in the top five, one way or the other. Yeah, well, yeah. And that is absolutely amazing, isn't it? To think that this this Canadian team, one of only 30 in baseball, had the third best minor league system, ready to evolve into a long team. And no, but at the same time, I really don't blame Anthopolis for going for it. Like, I you, obviously hindsight's easy to have right so now you'd want to sit back and have all these prospects but uh i really do can't you argue that when you trade every left-handed organizational pitcher uh or excuse me every left-handed organizational lever that you have to go out in the offseason and get someone like a howl couldn't you argue that he really really took away key resources for this team for the future oh 100 percent he did he 100 percent did just to go for it in one year and at the time, I was obviously happy. I was like, oh, picked up Price, picked up Tulo. I was like, okay, let's do this. Let's go for the run. But didn't end up too well, right? So now we're sitting back with uh, a slightly more depleted uh, uh, minor league system. But like as Craig was saying we, and Chris was saying, we, have, we still have a good system. Like we still have a lot of guys that go under the radar. Like, for example, uh, Kevin Vacuna. He's playing with, I believe, Vancouver Canadians right now. Their season just started. And he's 19. He's about 6'1", a buck 40. He was standing sideways. You could barely see him. He's so thin. But, like, I think when he builds muscle, when he comes up, he's a shortstop, he's a guy to watch for. So there's a lot of guys that are under the radar that I think with the Jays' development are going to be fine. So as much as he did hurt us going for it because we signed a guy like Howell and it's tough in the resources, I really, really don't think we're in awful shape in terms of how bad maybe another team would be because we still have a lot of minor league depth. Yeah, and I think there's two points. For me, there's two points to consider, too, with all of that. Um, first of all, as far as Barreto, yeah, I mean, I think he's going to be an excellent uh, big leaguer. There's, I, yeah. You know, watching him, he definitely looks like he's got the tools to be great. But as far as, um, you know, regretting it, we've got a lot of great shortstop prospects in the system now. You know, we've got Tulowitzki, who, yes, he struggled. Uh, this season, but I, he's got a few good years left in him. And by the time he's done, um, done being an everyday shortstop with us, there, there are several guys. Logan Warmoth was drafted this year. We've got Boba Shedd if he can stick it short. And we've got, you know, there's other guys. We we have uh, we have some great middle infielders in our system right now. And I, and as much as Beretta would have been great to have as another asset, of course, every asset's a great thing to have. 
but uh, I think we're going to have we're going to be just fine in that department. Though it'll be other yeah. areas that maybe we need to address. I want to win a World Series. That's the goal, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I remember. Sorry, and I remember my second point. I started to jump back in here again, but my second point was, you know, everybody talks about the what we traded away in order to make those moves, and obviously Syndergaard's the uh, the poster child for what uh, the one that stings, but. You know, you look and, you know, people talk about Miguel Castro and he hasn't developed, you know, being a tremendous asset and he hasn't developed the way that he looked uh, like he was going to when he broke into the big leagues as the, you know, being a closer with us and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, Daniel Norris has had to deal with um, health issues and hasn't hasn't flourished the way that they expected. Matt Boyd, uh, you know, I haven't looked at the Tigers' numbers for a while, but he's probably the guy that's had the most success at the big league level so far, and he was, the you know, the least of the, those prospects. So as much as there's still all kinds of time for each of them to have great careers, so far, they ha- in my opinion, they haven't been – it's not like they'd be making a tremendous difference in on our team. Maybe Norris or Boyd could be a left-handed reliever at the moment, but beyond that, it's not as if they'd be overtaking a spot in the rotation at the moment. And that's not a mistake. Definitely agree. Maybe they've had well, the goal, like you said, the goal is to win. And as, as Craig mentioned, we yeah. want to win a World Series. We want to see them um, win the big prize. And, of course, we probably all are in agreement here that they should have really done that in in, in that first attempt in 2015. But, but here we are in 2017, and the team is doing that agonizing thing that it does, which is tease the fans by showing them that collectively there's a lot of talent here and that when it is clicking on all cylinders and someone like Illyriano is giving you a quality start and you've got Batista and Donaldson getting key hits and suddenly you're hitting again, even though runners in scoring position is a foreign concept to this team for the most part this year. I'm wondering, let's, let's close our eyes and imagine a future where we have a Vlad Guerrero Jr., a Bo Bichette, and a Rowdy Telez in the lineup. What year is that? I'm going to start with you, Craig. What year is that going to happen if we open our eyes out of our time machine? Well, you're um, talking to the optimist on this one because I'm having been in trouble seeing where Bo Bichette and Vlad Guerrero are going to even hit that roadblock with how they've been hitting. I honestly see them being the weird case like Roberto Osuna that runs right through our minor league system. I, unless all of a sudden one of them forget how to hit, <laughs> I don't know if, if they're <laughs> ever going to get at that stop. And uh, I've been watching many Lansing lug nuts and almost treating their at-bats like must-see TV um, on the internet here. And watching Boba Shett swing a baseball bat is just a thing of poetry. It's one of those swings that's not 100% beautiful like you would think it would be but it gets the job done and he hits the ball everywhere. And I was looking at some of his spray charts the other day and he's hitting the ball hard even down the right field line. And yeah, same thing with Vladimir Guerrero. It's amazing with where the two of them are hitting the ball. Yes, it's single A, but you got to think single A is still not a, it's, there's not, it's a high level of competition regardless of the level it presents. Um, I, I will be very, surprised if they're both not in New Hampshire to start next season. Um, but then for every one of those guys, you've got a couple other guys. Edward Olivares has also been crushing the ball for the lug nuts. But I would be very surprised to not see them in the next couple of years at that ballpark time frame where Tulowinski and some of these guys are falling off of the contracts that they currently have with the Toronto Blue Jays. Mm-hmm. Well, and I yeah. think uh, if I, I I'm not 100 percent sure if I remember the name, I should, but I think it was Dave Cameron um, from Fangraphs, and uh, somebody asked him on Twitter a few nights ago who what they thought of what he thought of um, Vladimir Guerrero, and his response was, I think he's the best prospect in baseball, and uh, I, I won't be the least bit surprised if he's the best hitter in the game within the next decade. 
So you know, totally when you're getting that kind of uh, when you're getting that kind of praise from somebody who's uh, you know all over that many stats from that many different angles, it's a pretty uh, that's a pretty glowing glowing statement right there. That is. And so is. if you, if I'm putting a timeline on it, I wouldn't be shocked. I mean, they're only 18 and 19 years old, unless I'm mistaken. Feel free to correct me, but um, I wouldn't be shocked to see them. Maybe maybe they get a September call up if they if they end up in uh, New Hampshire to start next season. Maybe they get a cup of coffee in September next year. And um, I wouldn't be shocked to see them playing at least getting a shot by 2019. That assumes health and and development and all those sort of things. But I I think 2019 is a realistic timeline mm-hmm. uh, based on what we're seeing for yeah. those two so far anyway. Just yeah, I completely point. agree. I have to ask: Did you guys see Vladimir Guerrero do the home run derby for the Midwest League All Star oh, League? Wow. Or All-Star oh, game? he mashed! He mashed! <laughs> I was just watching the videos on Twitter, and uh, there was like a 30-second clip, and he hit like nine home runs easily like, yeah. without even taking a pause in that 30 seconds. It was just yeah, uncanny. That's that's, that's, and he's not even old enough to buy – he's barely old enough to buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but he could become he could become this team's – arguably this team's greatest homegrown prospect. And Did you see how far he was in those home runs? Buck. He's going to be – he's going to be one. And, that, and he, you know, I didn't uh, say this – because I'm not sure if he's going to stick at third. You know, we'll see. But uh, I think he factors into the Donaldson decision too. I yep, really definitely. think he's going to right fielder like his father was personally. But you think so? Yeah, I will be no, very right. impressed I, if I, he I stays at. at all. I'd be very impressed if he Sorry? sticks at third. Very. I think it's yeah, just the place yeah, to put his bat, uh, bat right now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think he's a and corners guy. There's no way he's playing anywhere but the corners for sure. <laughs> yeah. And as far as it goes to, he's actually, it might be because of his age and his youth in the league, but he's been actually uh, surprisingly defensively inclined at third base. (laughs) He doesn't look like he's out of his element or anything, but I wouldn't peg him as anything but an average third baseman as far as things go. Definitely. Defensively, yeah. yeah. I'd even even say below average. (laughs) Like, he's balls are hit a lot harder the higher you move up the system, right? The hot corner, I don't know if it's for him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have a Vladimir Guerrero or, you know, Boba Shett's not hitting Vlad freaking line drives at third base, but. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and we see here that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree in the case of Vlad, and his old man is going to the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame with some guy named Roy Halladay. And uh, now that I have you all here in this roundtable format, I, I want to ask you about Roy Halladay because I'm sure you have your, your strong feelings and, and Probably all of them are positive because he was just such an incredible uh, talent for this organization and in baseball. You know, drafted 17th overall in 95, I think it was, and uh, ultimately traded in 2009. Is this organization doing enough to stay in touch with Roy Halladay? He was supposed to be with this team, I believe, in spring training. It didn't work out. Um, And he's probably going to go to the Hall of Fame as a Toronto Blue Jays uh, legendary player. What are your thoughts about the relationship that the Blue Jays have today with Roy Halladay and, and maybe some of your thoughts or anecdotes about your best memories. Let's start with uh, Chris. I, you know, I, I hope to see the club make uh, a big effort to include him in whatever way they can going forward. I mean, he was, uh, he was, he was the best pitcher we've ever had. And, uh, you know, Roger Clemens maybe had some better seasons and you can make an argument for Dave Steve, but I would, I would say he was the best pitcher that we've ever had. Um, and as weird as it is, uh, my, I think my favorite memory uh, was seeing him throw a no-hitter for the Phillies. And uh, it was just because I wanted him to do so well. And it was so 
as much as that sounds ridiculous to say that, it was so awesome to see those that didn't really necessarily um, get get a full understanding of how talented he was. Because sometimes, you know, the, the Blue Jays don't get as much exposure south of the border. And so for him to be on that kind of stage and just throw in everybody's face, it was like, yeah, we've had, you know, this guy was our guy for a long time. And he was the only reason we were winning 70 games some years. Hey, Chris, let me jump in real quick. That win that you were talking about, the playoff win, that was the first playoff Blue Jay win that the Blue Jays had since 93, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like a win for us. <laughs> yeah, totally. Too true, too true. Absolutely. Uh, no, nothing but fond memories. I'm sure you all agree. He was, for someone who had an opportunity to see him in those early years when he struggled, because you remember, he was very much like uh, the positional player equivalent of what Carlos Delgado experienced where he came up and really impressed initially, but then he hit that rut or he needed to go back down to the minor leagues. Um, Nick, maybe offer us some perspective on what, what, when do you know a player needs to go back down to get that seasoning or that additional refinement? Because we've seen the promise of a lot of prospects from the Blue Jays over the last couple of years, and a lot of them have just been marketed and hyped, and then they disappear. When do you know that you've got a re- the real deal on your hands at the major league level? Uh, at the plate and pitching at all, it obviously differs. At pitching, I think it's having, if you're a starter, you got to have three good pitches. If you do not have three good pitches – it's tough to have success in this league, especially the AL East. It's, it's, if you can't really, if you don't have all three of those pitches that you can throw for a strike at pretty well any time, I think it's time to go to the minors and work on it a little more because all the best pitchers for the most part have three pitchers. (laughs) Well, in the bullpen, it's different. In the bullpen, it's different. I think like, even Estrada. Estrada is obviously fastball. Not that he's going to the minors. He has no options and I would never send him down anyway, but I'm just saying like, he's a fastball changeup guy. But when he developed that cutter and started throwing that breaking ball a little more, just to even have it off the hitters off balance, his numbers were much better. They're way, way better. I agree. So I think, I think it is developing that third pitch. If you're coming out of the bullpen, all you really need is two pitches. But if you're a starter, once through the order, you can throw your two pitches. Once you get that second time through the order, they've seen those two pitches. You need that third pitch. So I think when it comes to pitching, I think you, in order to be uh, like a – like a legitimate like stud in the uh, major leagues, I really think you need three pitches. I think that's when you think you have that star. At the plate, I think it all comes down to plate discipline. I think if you have the go off with a plan and you stick to that plan, I think that's the big thing. Because when hitters go off their plan, mm-hmm. I think that's when they start to struggle. Like even look at Pilar. I'm not saying that's why he's struggling, but at the beginning of the season, he was taking pitches. In all spring training, he was taking pitches. He's still taking pitches, but he's chasing a lot more pitches. Yeah, and I'm not saying that's why his average really depleted the way it has, but it certainly doesn't help. So I think plate discipline for a hitter. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. Yeah, for a hitter, <laughs> I think it's all, it's all plate discipline, plate coverage, going up with a plan and sticking to your plan. Because to hit in the minor leagues, you've got to be a good hitter. It, that's simple as that. You're a pure, pure good hitter. And then I think the ones that have success at the major leagues are the ones that have a plan and stick to that plan. So I think mm. – Having discipline at the plate and being able to throw three pitches for a strike as a pitcher is the key in order to have success in the major leagues. Sometimes we hear, speaking of pitching, sometimes we hear that a a reliever is nothing more than a failed starter. Craig, is is that a fair statement? I honestly am not a firm believer of that. I usually, like Nick was mentioning, usually maybe those... Some of those relievers might be the guys that only have a couple of pitches, and maybe their third pitch is something that's just kind of just to really change everything out of the ballpark for a hitter. Um, but it, it comes down to stuff. 
I think if you've got guys that have more movement and things like that that are maybe are only focused on those two pitches with all that movement, those are the guys that stick in your bullpen. But then every for every one of those guys, you got a guy that's like, you know, Chapman that for the Yankees that's been doing nothing but throw smoke. Yes, he does have a great slider to complement that smoke, but you get guys like that that come out and air it all out and they can get players out because you're only seeing them for, you know, a couple of times, maybe in a major league career, you'll only see a guy, even if he played for 10 years, four or five times because he's only used in certain situations and things like that. But then maybe you have somebody that's like our Aaron Loop that, you know, faced David Ortiz how many times and Ortiz never figured him out. <laughs> so yeah. I um, don't know where you go on those kind of things, but I think as far as it goes, it's just, it comes down to a matter of having enough to get major league hitters out period, whether you're a starting pitcher or you're a reliever. Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned Chapman, and that's what I was going to say. I was, if you're going to say a, a reliever is a failed starter, tell about to Roberto Osuna and, and Rollins Chapman and, uh, you know, Dennis Eckersley. And it, obviously there's plenty of guys that are, end up being bullpen guys that, that couldn't hack it in the rotation, but that's not always not always the case. So that's safe. that statement's not there in my mind. Osuna got comfortable in the bullpen and didn't want to leave. There was talk about him going to be a starter, was it, at the beginning of last season? <laughs> yeah. 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 There was an article the other day making an argument again uh, that he should be moved to the rotation, you know, prior to all the stuff that's happened in the last couple of days here. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, if he doesn't want to move and he's been one of the best closers to begin uh, the season ever, then well, I don't want to move him. But That's one of the problems, no. I think the real problem sometimes with baseball as a sport is that when things aren't going well, it's amazing how resourceful suddenly people become in terms of finding a way to get over certain issues with the lineup or troubles with the pitching staff. And I mean, Russell Martin is an example of that. Every time I see him at third base, I want to I burst out laughing because not that I don't think he's doing a great job. It's just that there's something so surreal of paying a catcher $60 million to play third base and then putting in a minor league player to catch. If you want to yeah, win, if, yeah. we, if we insist on winning and we think this team is good enough to win, aren't those shenanigans exactly what that is in some ways? Because it's not really a baseball club functioning properly. It's kind of like using another part of your car to help you move forward that isn't part of your propulsion system, for example. Hey, I do design as far as all that kind of thing goes, I think. <laughs> I, um, I agree with the Ari that watching Martin play third is kind of humorous as far as it goes. He has actually been not too bad over there. He's athletic enough. I think he can handle it for a short time, but um, you hired him to do a job. And there's plenty of guys in the minor leagues that are you know, paid to play third base. Why haven't that, that part of the conversation come up? Um, what, what should we expect from these AL East challengers heading into July? I mean, we know Baltimore, I think, in the last 20 games have averaged five and a half runs a game or something like that. That's a complete ridiculous uh, you know, starting staff there. Uh, Boston has been playing well, but slowly they've been banking wins here and they're positioning themselves to make a run. And the Yankees finally regressed after being, you know, a funny baseball club, which we all knew was only going to last for about one month anyways. Um, I'm going to start with you, Nick. Who should the Jays have on their radar in the, in the AL East that could be the difference between making the postseason or watching hockey early? Uh, honestly, I think the team to watch is Boston. I really like Boston's team. I think they got the pitching. They have the hitting. They have the talent there. It's only a matter of time before everything comes together. I really think Boston's the team to watch for in the AL East. I, I do like I like Toronto's chances. I do because it's not look well. It's not looking great. Like like we've said, we've dealt with injuries. We've dealt with a lot. It's only I hope gonna get better from here. 
So that's why I think watch for Toronto too, because this these next six to nine games, like we spoke to earlier, are huge. If those next these six to nine games, Toronto makes a big big run, and let's say in the next nine they go six and three, let then you watch for Toronto. But I think the one team that's going to give them trouble for me is Boston. Yeah, I, you know what? I agree with you, Nick. I think Boston is uh, is the most complete team as far as the roster is concerned, and and uh, we don't play them right away here. But I'm also I. I I can't help but just be a little bit worried about those pesky rays all the time. As much as they don't have the roster, as much as they don't have the rosters as the other teams, um, they somehow find a way to get it done. And uh, I'm worried that they'll end up being a pain in our real, royal rear end as the season wears on as they always are. Yeah, they always are. So I would not be surprised. <laughs> what about you, Greg? What do you think? Yeah, I agree with uh, Nick that the Red Sox are probably the big threat as far as our, you know future aspirations are concerned is but um if you had to lay out all the rosters for the American League East on paper as they sit currently, I'd be hard pressed to say that the Blue Jays are for some reason out of this. The only team on paper that looks better than us that has a well rounded team is the Red Sox. The Yankees had the glaring hole that they can't pitch out of a brown paper bag at the moment, it seems like. Yeah, you got Aaron Judge and matching the home runs every you know, game, but you're, they're relying on a lot of offense to get to the postseason. Same thing with the Baltimore Orioles. They have no pitching, and their bullpen is, you know, been in shambles, it seems like. So if you then you got the Rays that can only beat us, it seems like. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, um, I, I'd be hard-pressed to see why they can't push through all that. And then not to mention, even when you look outside the AL East, how many teams are dancing around the 500 level? The oh, Cleveland yeah. Indians are in second place, and they're nipping on a 500-level team in the Minnesota Twins. Mind you, I'm from Rochester, New York, so I like seeing the uh, Rochester Red Wings guys doing pretty good for the Minnesota Twins, but yeah. I don't see them having the legs to do anything but hang around the record that they're at right now, which is only mm. you know a handful of games different than where the Blue Jays sit right now. That's right. So you've got all sorts of things that could be playing into this thing, and I would be very displeased if they don't that they are in this all of a sudden and they want to go into the and be sellers at the trade deadline i think that would honestly be insulting to the talent that they do have on the team so i go in and i pick up those couple pieces that you might need trade some lower end guys and see what you can get out of it if it's trading for some depth behind you know they actually have a third baseman instead of putting russell martin out there you know maybe that's what they need (laughs) so go for those things and let's make a run out of this i still think there's a chance that we can still be a really good team at the end of the season regardless if it's just missing the playoffs or just making it in sorry yeah no i I agree with you there craig too i think that the blue jays uh, I think that's why, even you know, despite the fact that they're three games under under 500, I think that's why people still are cautiously optimistic. Because if this AL East had developed the way that people anticipated at the beginning of the season, then by now we'd all probably be we'd probably be writing it off being this far. Maybe not. Maybe not with the 90 games left. But you know, none of the teams, or uh, I guess I shouldn't say none of the teams, but the Red Sox haven't performed the way people expected as a whole this season. And uh, you know, as long as they can, uh, as long as we can keep. Uh, keep uh, pace with them and with the, with the, hopefully the Yankees continue to, to play the way that they have uh, more recently. But I don't think it's fair to expect Aaron Judge to perform that way throughout the remainder of the season either. You know, no. I, I don't think they're going to be a serious threat. No. 
The only then, team that's ran away with anything is the Houston Astros. And yeah, the only reason yeah. everybody else is in 500 land is because of the Houston Astros. So yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. how it is. And it's interesting. You, you all reminded me with the Aaron Judge uh, comment about uh, a few days ago, I had Mark Hepscher on the podcast and he mentioned the, that he discovered a statistic that in the first 33 games of his career, Aaron Judge is the, the first major league baseball player to the highest slugging percentage in his first 33 games. And wow. then he followed it by saying, wow. and it means absolutely nothing. And he's absolutely right. It, it means nothing until this season is, is completed. And uh, it's obviously impressive to see what they're doing, but I don't think it's realistic looking at that team to expect them to, to finish at 600 at the end of this year. So, there's no question we'll have a lot more to talk about. I want to, I want to go quickly around the table and, and maybe talk to you quickly individually about what you've got on the go uh, that's going to be featured on jaysjournal.com for future articles. Let's start with Craig. Maybe you want to talk about what's going on or what you have for listeners to appreciate this week. Well, seeing everybody is fearing and loathing at our 500, like, lack of fun. I've been uh, working on a piece that I just submitted that um, is talking about if you think things are bad now, take a look at uh, the transition from the 2003 season to the 2004 season, you know. It wasn't just the coming in of the Angry Bird, but as far as things go, the uh, Blue Jays were nipping on the heels of the Red Sox to make the playoffs in 2003, and then they completely buried it the following season due to way too many injuries, including to Roy Halladay and Carlos Delgado. So that pretty much yeah. buried the season, and that's what that article is going to be summarizing. And that is up for scheduling at the moment, so I'm not sure when that is going to be posted, but it should be in the near future. Awesome. That's excellent. What about you, Nick? What are you working on? Actually, because my last article I wrote that wasn't a my league recap was uh, top 10 John Gibbons moments. So I'm thinking about doing another, and yeah, had some. I thought there were some good laughs in it. Maybe I just make myself laugh. I don't know. But um, I think my next one is going to be probably. I'm thinking I'm going to keep along with the top tens, and I think top ten most iconic moments in Jay's history. So the Carter home run, a few other ones. Obviously, I'm not going to give too many away right now. But obviously, the Carter home run is going to be there. Uh, so yeah, I think that's what I'm working on right now. That is excellent. No, good stuff. We'll, we'll definitely look forward to that. And uh, what about you, Chris? What have you got that you're working on? You know, uh, actually, what I'll be chatting about for tomorrow's schedule is just uh, taking a look at this, uh, at these next nine games and, and what they mean to the team. And, you know, kind of maybe I'll just steal everything that we talked about here today and just use your guys' points since there's my writing. <laughs> but uh, I think, yeah, just taking a look at how crucial these next couple of weeks leading up to the All-Star break are and what that means for the, both the immediate and long-term future for the club. And by the way, that uh, that comment you made, Nick, about um, the top iconic moments, don't forget to include uh, the John Gibbons assault of Shea Hillenbrand after he wrote, uh, this is a oh, definitely. The ship is not sinking. Speaking of... That's it, that's it. Thanks, Craig. This ship is... <laughs> if anybody Speaking says of that, that again, Brand. I'm slap him. <laughs> Absolutely. Brand actually came out and apologized about that, eh? He said that he was in the wrong, Gibbons was 100% right. For sure, for sure. Yeah. yeah that's right. But, you know, Problem was, the story leaked already. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm sure Gibby's aware that in this day and age of social media, he's really got to be careful because he will get scrutinized on virtually everything. But there's comforting, I think you guys will agree, in having someone who you know would literally roll up his sleeves and, and physically restrain players and, and slap them around and say, listen, we're here, we're here to win. 
and these fans are playing top dollar and, and supporting this team through thick and thin. So let's let's do what we can to put on the best show and, and be competitive. Um, Had Lily learn the hard way, I guess. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> to Nick Raponi, Chris Henderson, and Craig Borden on the Jays Journal Podcast Roundtable. Gentlemen, have a wonderful evening, and I hope to see you next week, same time.